Let's have a word of prayer. Father, indeed, we, we thank you that we come into your presence this morning in this way. We thank you that we are able to sit under the preaching of your word. This morning, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, for sending your Son, that we may be redeemed. And Father, when we look at Calvary, when we look at his suffering and his dying, when we look at his ignominy and shame that he endured, we realize that your love is beyond measure. Your love is wider than the sea, as high as the heavens. And your love indeed encompasses all of those who belong to you in a very special way. We know, Lord, that you indeed are the creator of the whole world and you love your creation. But those who belong to you because of the work, the death, and the resurrection of your son are yours in a special way. We thank you for this. We thank you for calling us to salvation, for reaching out to us when we were unlovable, sinners of the deepest dying, reaching us in the depths of our sin and giving us eternal life. We thank you for implanting in our lives faith to believe and a heart that could repent so we could have eternal life. We thank you this morning, Father. We are yours. We belong to you because of the work of your Son, who now belongs to us as our Savior, as our Lord, as our Master, and even as our brother. We thank you for the blessing you've brought us into. And this morning, as we open your word, may your word again reach into our hearts. And may your word change us in such a way that we will live more and more like the one whom we claim to be our Redeemer. We thank you for this privilege to be part of your family. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we are back in Philemon, and I just want to remind you by way of introduction and review that our previous sermon, we looked at verses 4 to 7 of Philemon, which only has one chapter, and we made the point that Paul directs Philemon to the relationship he had with the saints at Colossae. And he does this to prepare him to receive Onesimus back home, no longer a slave, but now a dear brother in Christ. Philemon has already proved what he's capable of as a believer by his active fellowship and by the sharing of his faith. And by making the active sharing of his faith, as uh, that was displayed in Colossae, he refreshed the hearts of the saints. So Philemon had uh, established for himself a reputation that was well known. His reputation went before him so much so that Paul in Rome said, I heard of your refreshing of the saints, and that filled me with joy. This is the man that Paul wants to be waiting for Onesimus when he gets home. Paul's preparing this man to receive Onesimus when he gets home. And Paul is preparing him to, for this uniquely momentous event in his life as a prominent slave owner by showing him time and time again in this epistle what he already has become because of his love for Christ, his love for the saints, and because of his faith in Christ. And so today we move on to the main body of the letter, which extends from verse 8 down to verse 20. We get into the main section of this letter where we get to grips with what this letter is all about. And we have put the main section as from verse 8 to verse 20 for a certain reason. Verse 7, which we already covered last uh, sermon, serves as a transition from the thanksgiving section into the main body. 
And Paul ends that section of verse 7 by commending Philemon for refreshing the hearts of the saints at Colossae. When we get down to verse 20, which will not be this morning, we see that Paul ends uh, that section where he seeks from Philemon to refresh his own heart in Christ. And so the main body of this letter from verse 8 to 20 fits very comfortably between these two verses, which both refer to the refreshing that was an outcome of Philemon's active fellowship in the church, uh, at Colossae as a local church, but also broadly as he, even in some way, ministers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, sorry, ministers to Paul. I'm trying to think ahead. We can easily outline the main body under these three headings. Verse 8 to 14, a loving appeal, which is the title of our sermon this morning. Uh, verses 15 and 16, a lifelong association. And verses 17 to 20, making liberal amends. I tried to get the alliteration working through, but uh, it's the best I could do with what I had in my own head. This morning we will confine ourselves to the first section, a loving appeal, verses 8 down to 14. So let's read that those verses, verses 8 to 14 of the epistle to Philemon. Starting at verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you, and to me, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me, in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. And may the Lord bless us this reading of his word in this public way. This uh, first section of the main body of uh, Paul's epistle has three subheadings. Verse 89, an appeal to Philemon on the basis of love. Verses 10 down to 13, an appeal for Onesimus as a dear child. And verse 14, an appeal to Philemon's freedom to choose. Let's look at the first subheading of this section this morning. An appeal to Philemon on the basis of love. I repeat by reading verses 8 and 9. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Paul takes what's been written in the preceding sections of this epistle from verses 1 all the way down to verse 7. And he carries that thought into this main text, specifically what has been written between verses 4 and 7, uh, where Paul has reminded Philemon uh, in a very clear way that he has uh, set up for himself a dynamic which he needs to carry through when he meets uh, Onesimus. Philemon is a recognized brother in the church of Colossae, and his, and his ability his capability of responding to the saints in a way which refreshed them 
showed there was a man who had the love of the saints at heart. He loved the church at Colossae. He loved the people, the saints at Colossae, because of his faith in Jesus Christ, his love for Jesus Christ. So he had really proven that he was able to cross different um, personal barriers to refresh those who were benefiting from his giftedness and his love for the church. And Paul shows that that section in verses 4 to 7 is conjoined to where we are now, and the one is dependent on the other by his use of a very specific word. In the ESV, Paul says, accordingly. Accordingly links this section back to what has gone before. Other translations uh, use the word, therefore. And while these words seem equally valid, each has a slightly different nuance when we read it. In verses 4 to 6, Paul is focused on the active sharing of Philemon's faith in the context of church life. That was a direct result of his faith toward the Lord Jesus and his love for all the saints. So, Paul, so, so Philemon had already established this, and Paul said there is something of his steps which I want to work with. Furthermore, this love has brought Paul much joy and comfort, especially since the hearts of the saints had been refreshed through Philemon. Paul is very careful to take what he said before, and he's, he's building a very... Um, definite case for what he wants Philemon to do. This is a, this is a, a masterly outlay of rhetoric uh, in a diplomatic way, which, which, which is phenomenal. Paul is saying something. He's expecting something. He is sure something's going to happen without actually asking, commanding, or demanding it. And so Paul is taking Philemon down a road that Philemon probably never expected to go, but is inevitably going to do what the apostle wants him to do. The use of, of accordingly in, in the ESV seems to imply that Paul makes a general connection between the love displayed in verses 4 and 6 and the context of love in which he now makes an appeal in verse 9. So there seems to be, from what is said with the word accordingly, that uh, you should act now according to the way you acted before. Other translations, most notably the NIV and the NASB, insert the word therefore, which implies rather a specific idea when dealing with Paul's appeal. So I do believe that as you read the epistle and as you get other, other versions, other translations, that Paul is not just making a general case for what he wants to do, he's making a very specific appeal to Philemon based on something that Philemon already has, has done. And, and when I look at this word, therefore, I want to remind yourselves that um, we have uh, grown up with an old adage uh, it says, when you see the word therefore, you must start to see what it is therefore. Sounds quaint, it sounds old and trite, but it really is true. So Paul has already made reference to Philemon's act of love twice in the preceding verse, in verse 4 and verse 7. He makes specific reference to Philemon's love and the outcome of that love as it was displayed in the church of Colossae. There was a real, literal, tangible outcome. They were refreshed, and they, they enjoyed that refreshment because of Philemon's displayed love in his active display of fellowship in the church at Colossae. The appeal that Paul makes of Philemon, therefore, is not on, only in the context of love, but essentially is based on love. It's on the basis of love that Paul is going to take Philemon down the road where he needs to learn to love in a way which probably you'd never have done if Onesimus had never run away. I therefore think that the NIV 
and I will quote from there, gives us a better sense of what Paul is doing as he moves from uh, the framework of verses 4 to 6, 4 to 7, down into the main body. And I will quote to you from the NIV, verses 8 and 9. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. And the reason why Paul makes the basis of love a critical component of his persuasive argument is because he's not giving instructions as an apostle. He's making a heartfelt plea, an appeal. He's imploring uh, Philemon to make a certain decision, and he chooses not to make, in the, make a command as an apostle. So the entire uh, foundation of his uh, persuasive argument is that of love, specifically love that Philemon had already displayed and which had benefited the saints, now to benefit Onesimus when he returns. Paul sets aside his apostolic authority so that a more fundamental moral authority can take precedence, and that authority is love. The application of the law of love is far greater, has a far greater value than application of the letter of the law. In fact, love correctly applied is the fulfillment of the law. And that's clear from Romans chapter 13 and Galatians 5, where Paul writes both of his epistles, and when he talks about love being the fulfillment of the law, he says, love thy neighbor as thyself. Speaking of the, in the narrow context of who your neighbor is, not the broad context as the world wants to take it. And this is exactly what Philemon has to do. Philemon has to love his neighbor, not only those whom we live with day by day in Colossae, but a neighbor who is soon to return a brother in Christ, part of the church at Colossae, who became part of the church of Jesus Christ while in Rome. As an apostle, as an apostle Paul was, he was fully qualified to lay down the law, but he chooses a far more significant means of motivation, that of love. Paul wrote that wonderful chapter in 1 Corinthians, which we all went through on love, right? Um, and he says so much about love in that chapter that we listen to and we think, well, how is it ever applied? Here we see Paul applying that love in the life of a brother who is already a loving brother. And Paul says, you love a lot, you can love more because you're capable of loving more. That is why he says, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and, to order you and order you what to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Philemon's reputation as a good brother is common knowledge. Both in verse 4 and verse 7, we know that. Uh, the reason for this testimony is, firstly, because of his faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a faithful disciple. He was a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, because of his love for the saints. This was common knowledge. Philemon was the man that people saw as a loving brother. Paul's intention is to encourage Philemon to extend this act of loving, shared faith that Philemon is directed towards the church, now also has to be directed towards the soon returning Onesimus. And this is a work that Paul wants to see take place in Philemon's life. It is on the basis of this love that Paul makes an appeal. Paul makes love and not a command a basis for Philemon's actions because he wants to leave Philemon free to do the right thing for the right reason and not simply to obey a command. If Paul had simply given him a command, Philemon would no doubt have obeyed it, but it may have been begrudgingly. It may have been because he wouldn't want to go up against the Apostle Paul. It may have been because uh, he saw he had no way out. So if Paul had simply given a command, which he was his right and authority to do, 
he would have got the response from, from Philemon, but not the response that he desired to get from Philemon. He desperately wants Philemon to do the right thing in the right way for the right reason so that Christ may be glorified. And the Onesimus may be recognized in the way which he's entitled to as a brother in Christ. This is clearly stated in, in, in verse 14, and we'll get to that later on this morning, that uh, Paul clearly wants him to make this decision based purely uh, by himself. Paul is slowly starting to show his hand, and he gradually works up to the purpose of his letter. And he's intent on showing that everything that he speaks of Philemon has to be based on sacrificial love. But even though Paul's approach is subtle, it nonetheless places Philemon under increasing pressure. Philemon's not being let off the hook. Paul is slowly and inexorably in, in putting on pressure time and time again with every phrase he, he writes, with everything he points out, he's putting pressure on Philemon to move into a certain position where he can make a decision and make the decision on his own accord, but not because of lack of guidance, advice, and leading of the, of the, of the Apostle Paul. This pressure increases with Paul's next reference in verse 9. He says, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. This inclusion of his self-reference is parenthetical. It doesn't, he doesn't have to put it in there. Paul adds this for effect. In fact, Paul could very easily have gone and simply taken his text as he writes to Philemon from verse 8 and goes straight into verse 10 and leave it out. It would make total sense. Nothing would have been lost in the epistle. And I can say this to you in this way. Let me just read it to you and leave out the parenthetical section. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I appeal to you, verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. And it doesn't detract anything from the text and from what he's trying to do. Yet, Paul adds this caveat. He adds something which is there to um, motivate Philemon to think more and more about what Paul wants him to do. He appeals not so much to the apostolic figure, that he is, but rather he's appealing to his fatherly figure. Paul is being a father to Philemon in a way which is uh, phenomenal. It's a model of fatherhood, both uh, in the church and, by extension, a father to, to, to his family. But specifically here, as, a, as an older man uh, in the church of Jesus Christ, uh, as an apostle, yes, but more so as a father to, to Philemon, um, he wants to draw him out and let this son of his, the son of the faith, do that which would uh, bring joy to Paul and would glorify Christ and would edify the church and would be of a benefit to Onesimus. He appeals to this father figure of his. Paul addresses one child in the faith. Philemon is a child in the faith, according to verse 19, on behalf of another child in the faith, Onesimus. And in addressing Philemon, we can paraphrase Paul as saying, Listen, this is me talking. Me, Paul. You know who I am. I'm Paul, your spiritual father, verse 19. I'm Paul, your partner, verse 17. I'm Paul, your brother, verse 7 and verse 20. I'm Paul, your fellow worker, verse 2. I speak as Paul, not Paul the apostle. I speak as Paul, an intimate, loving, caring associate. And then Paul ups the ante. Paul adds to the strong bond of fellowship, a reminder that he also speaks as an old man. Now, at this point in Paul's life, he's possibly somewhere between the ages of 
54, 56, 57, not all by today's standards, but by the level of uh, living in that day, an old man, uh, a seasoned man, a man who has fully equipped, uh, not only by uh, the university of life, but particularly equipped by God to, uh, to, to father, to, to, to advise, to admonish, to encourage in a way which was a specific trait of this, this man who was not only an apostle but a pastor, a pastor and a father. So Paul adds to the strong bond, the fellowship of mind, he also speaks as an old man. And as an old man, Paul would benefit uh, greatly from the continued service of Onesimus. Paul says, I, Paul the Obisab, Philemon knows, uh, although it hasn't come out in the letter yet, but he knows by this time that Onesimus is with Paul. Uh, and being with Paul, who is an old man, uh, Paul values the help of younger men. Paul is con- constantly sur- uh, surrounded by young men. Timothy, Luke, Epaphras, uh, many of these men, some we will see when we get to the end of this, end of this book. Uh, so Paul... Uh, surrounded by these younger men so that he could impart to them the truths of God's word or teaching. He could teach them in a way which was a unique experience for them. But by the same token, they would offer him uh, help. They'd be a benefit to him. And as an old man, Paul would benefit greatly from the continued service of Onesimus. If Onesimus remains with him, that would be a great thing for Paul. And he says that later on. But he's willing to sacrifice his comfort for the benefit of Philemon. Paul says... Paul is driving Philemon to a point where he's got to realize that uh, what is good for me is not the primary thing in my life. The thing that is good for me is to be good for me because it's good for others first, the church. And Paul is setting an example that, and a model that Philemon cannot uh, avoid recognizing. But even then, more than just being an old man, more than this, He's not only an old man, but he's an old man in prison for the gospel. Paul is old. Paul is coming to the end of his, of his, of his ministries. Uh, he's got one more jail sentence after this, a horrendous one, in the same, same place a few years later, which will be a dismal uh, prison. This one is lighter in, it, in that he has his own house. Uh, he's able to have visitors. He's able to have the books. Uh, but he's still a prisoner, chained to a guard. He's not free to do as he pleases. And he's still a prisoner under Roman authority. And at any time, Rome could change its mind. At any time, the authorities could say, well, stop this, um, this soft imprisonment and make it hard, which they do do later on. So Paul says, not only am I an old man, but I'm an old man in prison. And the gradualism of Paul's persuasion is inescapable. Paul is gradually turning in the screw tighter and tighter and giving Philemon, um, uh, uh, very little space to move. He gradually intensifies his appeal as he builds his argument, so that when the fully formed appeal is presented to Philemon, Philemon would be emotionally, mentally, and spiritually prepared to do the right thing. This is a man who's taking uh, another man along a road and kind of loosening up the training wheels, and at some point in time, he's to take the training wheels off and to go on his own. And by the end of this epistle, that's Paul's expectation, that Philemon will take what he's learned from the Apostle Paul through the writing of this letter and do the right thing, going on his own, doing his own thing in the way which would be the right thing to do. And Paul does this without a single command, without a single instruction, without 
of making one demand of Philemon. His end game is to obtain a willing consent from Philemon on the basis of love. Paul does not espouse this, uh, the philosophy that says, do as I say and don't do as I do. You may be thinking, well, it's all good and well for Paul to say to Philemon, do this. Fully aware of the social political conditions that Philemon faces when he takes back a runaway slave. Maybe Paul is telling him to do something that Paul himself would not do. Well, we beg to differ. In fact, we know that Paul's position is one that is diametrically opposed to that of do as I say, don't do as I do. How do we know that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And we know that that, chapter, that verse comes as the closing part of chapter 10. And we, Paul speaks about so much about, this, about what he has offered up so they can be an example to those who are of Christ. Philemon is being prepared to imitate the apostle in his sacrificial dealings with others for the sake of Christ. That was the whole point of verse 6. Philemon is being prepared to continue to do what he has really done uh, by sacrificially dealing with others, uh, in this case, particular case, in one other, uh, Onesimus, when he returns. Which brings us to our uh, second subheading, an appeal for Onesimus as a dear child. Verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you, and to me, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Paul finally gets to mention the person at the center of his letter. In fact, in the original um, text, Paul says everything about this one, he prepares uh, Philemon for receiving this one, and then at the end, he drops in the name, almost as though he's saying, well, this and this and this, this is what you've done, uh, for Onesimus. He drops the name in last to give impact to Philemon to realize that the person that Paul is speaking about is the same person Philemon knew, but no longer the same person that Philemon knew. And that change is the center of this entire epistle. This verse introduces the third person in what I've called the tale of three men. In fact, if you look at the entire main body of uh, this epistle from verse 8 down to verse 20, it really is a, 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 can have a heading, the tale of three men. It means a tale about three men. That title has been, a, has been used in many, many areas, uh, but I think it applies here. Uh, Paul focuses on the relationship between these three men in this letter and helps us to have an understanding of Onesimus and Philemon that we would not have had it not been for this epistle. Paul speaks about the relationship between himself and Onesimus, a convert to Christianity during Paul's imprisonment in Rome. And we'll look a bit more at that now, and particularly more about that when we get to verses 15 and 16 uh, in another sermon. Uh, Paul's relationship to Philemon comes out in this uh, epistle. Philemon also became a Christian through Paul. Uh, Onesimus became a Christian through Paul uh, in Rome, in the prison. Philemon most likely came to salvation when he dealt with Paul in Ephesus years before uh, and met up with Paul in Timothy. And so we see that both Philemon and Onesimus uh, come to salvation 
through Paul. So it's Paul and Onesimus has a relationship. Paul and Philemon has a relationship. And these two are therefore considered Paul's sons uh, or children in the faith. This is Paul's spiritual family of three. Let's think about this. Paul starts this epistle by writing to a physical family of three, does he not? Writes to Philemon, uh, Apia, and Archippus. And he says, here's your physical family. And we made a point of saying that the reason why they included in the epistle was because what Onesimus what has done most likely impacted on their practical financial lives, their home business. So there was a practical impact on them as a physical family, that three, and Onesimus returning would have implications. And yet Paul draws out a second family, a family of three, Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon, who have far more, far more important things to think about because their relationship is based on a far more important uh, uh, foundation, not that of flesh and blood, but on love and of salvation in Jesus Christ. And then finally, there's, a, there's Philemon, the Philemon-Onesimus relationship. One-time master and, and slave, and now brother and brother. And that relationship has changed, and changed dramatically. And so we gain some insights into the relationship between Paul and Onesimus from verses 10 to 30, which I've just read. Paul's intimate knowledge of Onesimus uh, comes out. They are not just casual, cursory acquaintances. Paul knows and has come to know Onesimus in a very real way. And not just as a runaway slave, and not just as another Christian, but as a beloved, dear brother in Christ. And so we get to see what Paul knows about Onesimus, but what Paul tells about Onesimus uh, in these verses. And there's seven things that jump out clearly when Paul writes about Onesimus. Number one, we've already said that Paul makes an appeal on behalf of Onesimus, because Paul loves Onesimus. This man is close to his heart. He says that. We can't escape these words. This is the heart of the letter body. The word is used elsewhere as big or urge, or we call this appealing. Paul is begging Philemon, imploring him, urging him in as, in as gentle a way as he can, without tramping on his toes, without offending his senses as, in the, as, a, as a slave owner, without trying to coerce him into doing something he doesn't want to do, Paul is gentle, but nonetheless, Paul is imploring and urging and appealing. And he does this on behalf of Onesimus, because he loves Onesimus. This is an attitude of exposing himself to being refused. Philemon could have said, no, I, I don't think I understand. This man's cost us a lot. Besides, my, besides the money, which he may or may not have taken, we'll look at that shortly, but my reputation as a slave owner and my standing in my community. Philemon could have said, no, because Paul never tied him down to saying, you must say yes. Paul is putting himself, putting himself out there, as we so often say, on behalf of Onesimus. And this speaks volumes about Paul's love for Onesimus. Paul appeals for Onesimus because he loves him. That's the first thing. Secondly, Paul has been instrumental in Onesimus' salvation, 10 B, whose father I became in my imprisonment. This letter does not tell us how Onesimus came to be in the same place as the Apostle Paul. Neither does Colossians, the only other book that uh, contains his name. There are several options open to us, as, and we will deal with that when we get to verses 15 and 16, as how Onesimus possibly, and maybe probably, came to be in Rome with Paul, uh, and why is there. That's un have to be, has to be for another sermon all on its own. But we can be certain of two things from what we have in front of us. 
Paul became his father in the faith while being imprisoned, and the circumstances that led Onesimus to Rome was not accidental. They were not circumstances that were accidental. He was there because of providential circumstances. Onesimus was in Rome because God wanted him to be in Rome. And that we need to, we need to grapple with when we get to those verses. He was in Rome because of providence. God wanted him to be there, verse 15 of this, this book. And by including this in his appeal to Philemon, Paul is preparing Philemon to receive a different Onesimus to the one who had left him. Number three, Paul confirms that Onesimus was formerly useless to Philemon. He says that in verse 11. Formerly he was useless to you. Nothing can be more demoralizing than being told that you are useless. This epistle is being read publicly. Onesimus is probably listening to this being read because Paul also did the church in the beginning. And this was sent to the church together with the Colossian epistle. And so Paul says something about Onesimus which uh, up until then, up until the prison, prison uh, salvation, would have been highly offensive to Onesimus. Whether it was true or not, it doesn't matter. Calling somebody useless, I think they would be classified as hate speech. I may be wrong, but there's not much that can go wrong that we can do these days, and it's not hate speech. Formerly, he was useless to you. Many commentaries support the idea that slaves from Phrygia and Colossae was part of that area of Phrygia, uh, that those slaves had a bad reputation. Just as a general rule, those slaves from Phrygia were, were bad slaves, just as people from Corinth had a certain reputation for being Corinthian. So Phrygian slaves were considered to be slaves with bad reputation. And it, if this is accurate, then it seems that Onesimus was a product of his own slave community. We must ever pause and consider this. We have no way of knowing what Onesimus was guilty of. Nothing in this letter articulates his actions. The reason for this is that Paul does not have to spell out to Philemon what Onesimus did wrong. But Philemon knows. In fact, most likely the entire community knows that Onesimus has gone and done X, Y, or Z. It's never articulated, detailed, or expressed by Paul. It is commonly assumed that Onesimus stole property from Philemon before running away. But that's only inferred from verse 18, where Paul says, If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge it to my account. Don't misread that word, if. Paul is not making a statement. Paul is not alleging wrongdoing. He's simply raising a possibility for the sake of his argument. And we will look at that argument when we get to verse 18. Uh, Paul doesn't even say that Phonismus actually took something. He's setting up an argument based on a possibility to prove a point. And so we'll get to that uh, later on. Please be patient. Watch this space, as they say uh, elsewhere. All that is certain about Paul's account is that Onesimus was not a very valuable slave prior to his conversion. And Paul states this directly. Philemon's treatment of Onesimus on his return will be determined by how much value he placed on Onesimus as a slave. And this is critical. If Philemon didn't realize that the person coming back is not the person who ran away, he may prepare himself and prepare his household and prepare his business community to see how he deals with a runaway slave. And Paul wants to prevent this at all costs. If Philemon responds as was common for slave owners of his day, things do not bode well for Onesimus. Paul's appeal to Philemon is to prepare the reception of Onesimus to be different than that which was socially acceptable. A different reception is necessary because Onesimus returns a different man. 
Onesimus has become a living example of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where it says, being in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old Onesimus is dead. A new Onesimus arrives soon at Philemon's door. And in fact, the fourth thing that Paul says about uh, Onesimus tells us how significant this change is. Paul states that Onesimus is now both useful to him, to Philemon, and to himself. He says it in this way in verse 11. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. The word but indicates there's been a change from one condition to another. He was this, but now he's the opposite. It was in this way, but now is diametrically opposed. Something has changed, and changed dramatic, dram, uh, dramatically. This claim about Onesimus is critical, and we need to keep this in mind, because Paul is building up something here that uh, we need to think about when we look at our own lives in certain circumstances. If Philemon reacts to Onesimus returning in the way that was commonly practiced, then Onesimus was in danger of being severely punished. And by sending him back, Paul could be exposing Onesimus to serious abuse. If things didn't go well and Paul sends him back, Paul would then be culpable of sending him back to a very unwelcoming uh, environment. But all of this is negated if Philemon sees that Onesimus has been spiritually flipped. He was once useless. He's now the total opposite. He's become useful in Christ. And that is a point that needs to change Philemon's uh, mind as he expects the slave to return home. And Paul, confident this knowledge will motivate Philemon to do the unusual, the unexpected from the perspective of his contemporaries, Paul determines to send Onesimus back. Even before receiving assurances from Philemon that he will receive him back. Uh, precisely because he knows Philemon will want to see the usefulness that, that, that Onesimus can now provide for him, as he has already provided for the Apostle Paul. When Paul says he is now indeed useful to you and to me, uh, there's a very interesting play on words, and we find this very often in Scripture where there are plays on words which comes out strongly in the original. This is one of those fortunate cases where it comes out strongly in the English too. And so uh, the meaning of Onesimus is useful. That's what his name means. His name means useful, profitable. So when Paul says uh, he was useless and now he's useful, it's a very clear play on the name of Onesimus. This name was a very common name among slaves, because every slave master wanted his slave to be useful. It's ironic that the man or the slave whose name meant useful was proven to be useless to his master. But more significantly in this case, the useless one had been, had been providentially changed. God had changed a useless slave into a useful brother who could now live up to his name without any shame. Onesimus had become useful. Onesimus had become Onesimus, in the true sense of his name, because of the providential change brought about salvation uh, by Jesus Christ. Paul is careful to point out that Onesimus is useful to Philemon firstly, and then to himself. Paul again strategizes very carefully. Paul doesn't say it's useful to me and, and also to you. Paul keeps Philemon's uh, importance as the person that is the a primary role player in this whole process uh, in front of everyone's eyes. He says, he's useful to you and also to me. And Paul is careful to not in any way make Onesimus think that Paul is trying to pull rank on him. Paul's not. Paul is trying to encourage this man in a way which is phenomenal, which 
which if it's seen in the church today, will make us very different churches in so many ways. Number five, how do we know that what Paul knows about Onesimus? Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon. He says, I'm sending him back to you. That's important. Paul is telling Philemon, he's coming back. There are two important things that are important to Paul's appeal for Onesimus. Onesimus has been converted, number one, to Christ through Paul. But secondly, Paul is sending a new convert back to Philemon. The second part, the sending back of Onesimus, is another way that Paul indicates to Philemon that he's making a special sacrifice for the benefit of a brother in Christ. A position he expects Philemon to make when receiving Onesimus. But Paul says, I'm sending it back. Paul says, be aware of this. And we see how he says it later. You rephrase it. Paul says the same thing over and over again in different ways to drive the truth home. Paul says, he's useful to you. He's useful to me. But you know something? I'm sending him to you. Where his usefulness will be probably best spent. And so Paul uh, sends him back. And he sends him back, expecting Philemon to take Onesimus back with the same kind of um, love and brotherly care that Paul expresses now to Philemon in sending him back. Number six, which Paul says this about Onesimus, Paul has a special affection for Onesimus. He says, I'm sending back my very heart. Now remember, he's already mentioned heart before. He's spoken about uh, uh, Philemon uh, refreshing the hearts of the saints. Um, I'm not speaking about the thing that goes boom, 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 yeah. Uh, speaking about the center of our emotions, uh, really our, our, our gut, our, our spleen, our, our, our inner parts. It may sound gross to you, but it was uh, beautifully uh, eloquent in the day of Paul. It says exactly what uh, it meant. It sounds uh, like what it meant. And uh, I think probably English news about, I think in Afrikaans, on Christ who are not even uh, Elvis is the same yes to me. But yes, some languages are very expressive. And so the, the, the idiom uh, says, or we say, well, it's something in my very heart. That which is most dear to me. Paul takes one more step to emphasize the extent to which he's prepared to go. So that Philemon may benefit, may benefit from the newly saved and permanently changed Onesimus. The one that Paul sends back is not only a son in the faith, but it's become a dear friend and an intimate companion. The depth of this loving relationship emphasizes the magnitude of Paul's sacrifice. The sacrifice is so great because the love is so deep. Uh, the, the benefit to Philemon is so extravagant because what Paul is giving up is so valuable. And so Paul points, puts these two contradictions, almost these two uh, um, differences. Uh, he emphasizes, he overemphasizes so that the Philemon can get the idea of this is what's expected of me. A... a, a an um, elaborate uh, expression of love uh, towards one who was once a slave. But now Paul has left very little wiggle room for Philemon to react incorrectly. And then Paul drives the nail home. In verse 13, Paul says this, Paul would have been, sorry, Paul says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Paul would have been glad to keep Onesimus with him rather than sending him back to Colossae. That was Paul's deep desire. Paul has a strong desire, desire to keep Onesimus with him. It's clear from these verses that a strong bond is formed between Paul and Onesimus. He's not saying, you know, perhaps I can keep him. It would be nice to keep him. Uh, would it be a bad thing if I kept him? Paul says, I want to keep him. I want to keep him. I would have been glad to keep him with me. 
so that he could serve a purpose that you couldn't serve. Philemon can't be with me in, pri- in prison, look after my needs, but Onesimus, as a representative, not truly a representative, as a brother, could be of service to me. However, he says, I would keep him uh, with gladness. Paul tells us a lot about uh, Onesimus by saying these things about him. And he's waiting until this part in the epistle to tell us so much about him. He was a faithful and a beloved brother. He tells the Colossian church, and we know that this man was close to Paul's heart. Paul is in a desperate need for Christian fellowship and brotherly support in his imprisonment. Onesimus readily fills both those needs, and Paul would be glad to keep him there to fulfill the needs of service, of brotherly love, of affection, and of Christian fellowship. Onesimus would serve, or best serve Philemon, by serving Paul. As is born about what Paul says, he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Paul could easily pull the rank and keep Onesimus, but he does that which is the epitome of self-sacrificing love. He sends Onesimus back to Philemon. Subsection 3, or C, an appeal to Philemon's freedom to choose. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Verse 40, with, together with, with verse 13, provides attention that must not be overlooked. When understood correctly, these two verses taken together give insight as to how the apostle deals with choosing between two good realities. Paul's not vacillating between two opinions as in, uh, in 1 Kings. He's not kind of uh, not knowing what to do. Paul is faced with choosing two equally good choices. And he wants to keep Onesimus back, which would be for, good for Paul and also for Onesimus. But he equally wants to make, take nothing for granted and chooses to defer, Philemon, defer to Philemon's consent rather. Paul has been caught in this kind of dilemma before. Philippians chapter 1, he says, uh, If I am to live in the flesh, it means full, fruitful labor for me to you. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. It's hard place to stay with the saints or go home. Both are good choices, but he makes the good choice because it's the right choice for the right reason. As in Philippians, so also in Philemon, Paul must choose and is convinced of which choice to make. Paul does not override Philemon's authority by insisting that Onesimus remains with him. Paul does not command Philemon to receive Onesimus back uh, under compulsion. Paul does not even give Onesimus the option of remaining in Rome. The situation can best be rendered as, I wanted to keep him with me, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent. In conclusion, Paul is determined to send home a brother who is dear to his heart, who is close to him, and who he desperately wants to keep with him. But he sees a greater need elsewhere where Onesimus can rightfully go back, set the record straight with his former master, who Paul hopes to be a brother and not more than that. He can go back and serve the church at Colossae. He can go back and serve Philemon in whichever way that develops. Uh, so Paul says to Philemon, I've given you an example of my life. I've unpacked the changes in, in Onesimus' life. Please receive him back as a brother in Christ. Quickly, in closing, are the implications for us? Uh, we say, uh, this is a story taking place in antiquity. We're not slave masters. We don't have slaves. We're not slaves. Nice story, but really does impact us well. If Scripture doesn't have implications for us, then we should not be preaching Scripture. This definitely has clear applications in the life of Philemon and Onesimus. But what are the implications for us? We should pose ourselves a few questions. If Philemon has to 
uh, rather Paul has to engage in resolving conflict before the conflict happens. And so he addresses the situation because of his wisdom, his desire to see peace and love in the church. We've gone through a whole series of conflict resolution. We need to be as astute as Paul and see in the lives of those in our, in, amongst us the possibility of conflict, the possibility of things going wrong. And we should be prepared to step in as Paul does. But pray that we do it as graciously and as lovingly and as caringly as Paul does. What about developing a relationship within the church? Paul shows how Philemon standing in the church was able to not only affect the church, but affect the situation outside that was brought back into his home through the receiving of Philemon, of Onesimus. And finally, are we prepared to make hard choices in our lives? Very often we have to make a choice between the good and the bad thing. That's easy. Very often we have to make a choice between the bad thing and the bad thing. That's easy. We just choose life. But what about two good things? And this is very pertinent to us right now. And I'm going to briefly touch on this. Say it and then move on to closing. We are faced with difficult choices today. Both of which is equally good. To work is good and I should keep my job. But to honor Christ is good and I should honor Him. Which of those good choices do I make in today's light? Today's economy, in today's situation. We are called to make good choices. We need to be like Paul and pray God's grace. We make the good choices, make the right choice of two good choices in order that choice honors God. Paul is using the, the events in Philemon's life, in the life of Onesimus, in the life of the church at Colossae, we, uh, if we re- reference that church, and to show that no Christian has ever lived in conditions that's easy and comfortable. There is no comfort zone for a Christian if you're living as a Christian. If you're living like a little Christ, there is no comfort zone. Because the world hated him. The world hated us. The things that the world loves were contrary to what he taught. And so we heard this morning about how easy it is to be sucked into the world and look like the world and be like the world and love the things that the world loves. Then we do end up in a comfort zone. A zone that's comfortable to our own natural uh, uh, disposition. But if we are like Philemon and like Onesimus and like Paul, we need to get out of the comfort zones, make decisions that's hard to make, make the right decisions because they're the right things to do, and do so in an atmosphere of love, faithfulness to Christ, love for the saints, and that we may have a heart relationship one with the other. For his name's sake, amen. Father, we thank you for the privilege of hearing your word in so many ways. We thank you for able to open your word and read it, read it in this way. We pray that we may take these words with us. They may shape our lives this week so that more and more we may be shaped into the image of your Son who loved us and gave himself for us, one who was the epitome of sacrifice and love and compassion and indeed who has loved us to the bitter end. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.